Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're continuing our survey through the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of God's salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. And as we have seen, Luke sets the stage for his gospel against the backdrop of the wider world with its rulers and empires. The implication is that this new ruler, a new ruler is coming onto the world stage. And from this time onwards, the nations and their rulers must reckon with him. Caesar, Pilate, Herod, the high priest, Trump, Putin, Merkel, the Pope, all must reckon with Jesus, the King of Kings. We're going to jump right into the text this week, um, but it's important to know that the passage preceding what Kyle just read was about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. You You may already know the story, but following his baptism, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he spends 40 days fasting and facing temptation from the devil. And Jesus resists that temptation, and then we come to verses 14 and 15. Let's read it. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus has just experienced a time of testing in the wilderness, and now he is entering into the land. His movements are tracing the steps of ancient Israel. So if we recall the history of Israel, especially the book of Joshua, we ought to be expecting a conquest of some sort. We should be expecting to see Jesus facing opposition. Before God's people can enjoy peace and prosperity in the land, Jesus is going to have to drive out the enemy. Verses 16 and 19. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Pause, real quick. Jesus was so much more than a weekly churchgoer, but he was not less. So it's, it, it's not actually possible to say, I don't really care for the church, I just want to follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, he will lead you into the church. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the verses recorded by Luke here are they actually combine quotes from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, which probably indicates that Jesus read more than just these verses. Actually, this is a helpful Bible reading tip. When you see the New Testament quoting the Old, don't just read the reference verse. Read the reference verse and its broader context. The New Testament writers are wanting you to bring the full picture of the Old Testament into your reading of the New. So what's going on in Isaiah 58, 59, 60, and 61? Isaiah 58 is about true fasting, the sort of fasting that is pleasing to God. And remember, Jesus has just completed a 40-day fast in the wilderness. 
Isaiah 59 is about how our sins have separated us from God. God can't find a faithful, sinless human, and so he's going to have to take matters into his own hands. Chapter 59 talks about a future redeemer. And I want to point out verse 21 from Isaiah 59. This is Yahweh speaking. This is God. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth and forevermore. Out of your mouth, out of your mouth, out of your mouth. Now look at Luke 4, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Literally, in the Greek, out of his mouth. Luke is writing his gospel with the words of Isaiah in his mind. And he's, he's choosing his words very carefully. He could have written, they marveled at Jesus' teaching. Or they marveled at the words he was saying. But he didn't. They marveled at the words coming out of his mouth. So, who is Jesus? He's the redeemer of Isaiah 59. Okay, now, chapter 60 is a passage you've probably heard around Christmas time. All the nations of the earth are drawn together. They're, they're drawn toward a light that has risen over Israel. They bring gold and frankincense. They adorn the temple and they worship in the temple and they build up the walls of Jerusalem. And as we'll see, this, this theme of non-Jewish nations worshiping the God of Israel is highly relevant to Luke's gospel and to our passage today in particular. And lastly, we come to chapter 61, which is where most of Luke's quote comes from. Let's read it one more time. Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It sounds really good. Let's keep reading, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And so Jesus reads a prophecy about what the Messiah is going to do. And then he claims to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. He claims to be the Messiah, the Redeemer. And at first, the people are on board. I think we tend to miss that. Initially, the people were marveling at Jesus. Remember, at, at this point in the narrative, John has just baptized Jesus. And right there in front of a crowd, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form and the Father speaks audibly from heaven. People don't tend to forget something like that. And remember, from verses 14 and 15, a report had been circulated throughout the region. Jesus was developing a good reputation. Verse 15 says he was being glorified by all. And so the people were not surprised or upset when Jesus made this claim. They were marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
Okay, so why do they turn on him so quickly? What makes them want to kill the man who moments ago was their only hope? Let's read verses 23 to 30. Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's a story there that Luke does not tell us. So right when things were getting good for Jesus, he deliberately reigns on the parade. He was influential. His approval rating was through the roof. He had their full support, and he threw it all away. So, so what do you think was so controversial about what he said? Well, on the surface, Jesus is just refusing to do miracles in his hometown. But it's actually deeper than that. And so he tells two stories in order to explain himself. The first story is from 1 Kings 17. There was a great famine in the region, and many Israelites were hungry. But the prophet Elijah was sent by God to a widow in Sidon. He feeds her family and even raises her son from the dead. The second story is from 2 Kings 5. Despite there being plenty of lepers in need of healing in Israel, Elisha heals a man of leprosy in Syria. And so Elijah works miracles in Sidon, and Elisha works miracles in Syria. Quite simply, the scandal here was that Sidon and Syria were not Israel. These were Gentile nations. These were non-Jewish people. The Israelites in the synagogue were ready to give Jesus their full support. This is, this is the Messiah. He will save us. He will defeat our enemies. He will take back our land from the Romans. He will restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place of prominence. But instead, Jesus expresses his intention to love and redeem not just Israel, but any person or nation who is willing to acknowledge his authority. Jesus comes to love Israel's enemies. Jesus comes to minister to the godless pagan nations. They say, we've, we've been waiting for you. We have been trusting the promise. We have suffered at the hands of nations who will not acknowledge the one true God. So it is obvious what you need to do. We've been waiting on a blessing from God. And that blessing is not for the godless nations who have been a curse to us. 
Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, you are saving the wrong people. This was obviously the wrong way to respond, right? But when you really stop to think about the situation from the perspective of a first century Jew, you you can start to understand their violent reaction. And the truth is, we still do this. Our society is incredibly polarized right now, which makes it easy to consider certain people or groups of people as beyond the reach of God's redemption. But Jesus came for everyone. Jesus came for every tribe, nation, and tongue. He came for every race and ethnicity. He came for the rich and the poor. He came for the unborn and the dying. He came for the popular and the socially awkward. He came for the Baptists and the Catholics. He came for illegal immigrants and border patrol agents. He came for American troops and Islamic terrorists. He came for lawmakers and criminals and criminal lawmakers. He came for President Trump and his voters. He came for Hillary Clinton and her voters. He came for Bernie Sanders and his voters. Deal with it. I want you to take a moment to picture the object of your scorn. Picture in your mind the person or group of people upon whom you place your contempt and derision if it weren't for those people. Jesus came for that man or that woman or that group of people. Jesus came for the angry, fearful, and selfish person I see when I look in the mirror. He is radically gracious. He's scandalously gracious. This is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. This is the parable of the prodigal son. The Messiah has come to offer grace and forgiveness to the undeserving, and that's everybody. Here at Sojourn, we value church as family, but we have to define our terms. When we say family, we aren't talking about a closed community. We aren't talking about building a fortress to keep out all the pain and suffering of the world. When we say family, we are talking about an open and adopting community. Our door is wide open to the mess of poverty, addiction, broken families, differing opinions, new converts. So Christians don't settle for loving only the people we like or the people we are like or the people we look like. That's too easy. If Jesus had done that, we would be without hope. If Jesus had done that, we would be without hope. The scope of the Messiah's mission humanizes the world. The gospel is a powerful social balm precisely because it humanizes every human. 
It has the potential to heal all sorts of division and strife. When we, cr- when we cross paths with human beings, we cross paths with people who are well within the scope of the Messiah's mission. He came for them, and so we go to them. And so the people get angry, and they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. And remember, this was Jesus' hometown synagogue. These people knew him. They knew, they knew his parents and siblings. They watched him grow up. And yet they wanted to throw him off a cliff. This is actually the second time here in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus has been faced with the prospect of falling to his death. Earlier in this chapter, the, the devil tries to tempt Jesus into throwing himself from the temple mount trusting that angels will catch him. So Satan wants, wants Jesus to force the hand of his heavenly father. But Jesus refuses. He will not listen to Satan. He has come to do his father's will, not to make the father do his. And now the people are trying to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because he won't listen to them. The people were being little devils. They wanted Jesus to do their will. They wanted a particular type of Messiah, and Jesus wasn't going to be what they wanted. Again, he has come to do his Father's will. He is going to offer life and deliverance and salvation and forgiveness, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. It's not enough It's not enough for God to have Israel and for the devil to have Rome and Syria and Egypt and every other nation. And so the Messiah is coming to claim all of it. And that is the conquest we should be expecting throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Even as Jesus overpowers the spiritual forces of darkness and and rebukes the pride of world rulers and the spiritual elite, He is extending grace and love and peace to all who acknowledge his authority and lordship, to all who give him their allegiance. Why? Why does Jesus need your allegiance? He doesn't. He's offering to be your king. And the offer is good because the king is good. And so if you can get over the offense of the offer, the grace and love of God are for you. If not, you are choosing to stand in his way. You are choosing not to reckon with the king of kings. Upon the basis of Jesus' universal authority as the king of kings, he calls the church to every nation, uh, to, to call every nation of the world into submission to his lordship. He calls the church to a universal conquest of love and righteousness and justice and peace. Caesar, Pilate, Herod, the high priest, Trump, Putin, Merkel, the Pope, you, me, our neighbors, all must reckon with the King of Kings. And this is how the King of Kings describes his ministry. From Matthew 11. The blind receive their sight, 
and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Sounds a lot like Isaiah. This is the king we all need, describing the world we all want. In a world full of corruption and pettiness and power struggles, Jesus is a world ruler who cares deeply for his constituents. His government never closes. He cares for us to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Jews in Nazareth did not have the power and authority to throw him from a cliff, but Jesus had the power and authority to lay down his life voluntarily. Why? Why would he do that? Because he cares for us to the point of death. The offer is good because the king is good. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. The good word delivered to us by Jesus, the Messiah, the redeemer of Isaiah 59. Jesus, thank you for boldly saving even us. If you had come only for the Jews, we would be lost in our sins. Holy Spirit, make us the sort of people who extend the Messiah's mission to all the nations, who, who live as though the scope of his mission includes every human being we come across. And I do pray that, that as we live that way, as the church lives that way, you would change the world. You would bring your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.